Jesus of Nazareth, Scripture, Revelation, and Tradition is the title of the, the talk. A year and five months after assuming the office of the papacy, Benedict XVI published the first volume of his book, Jesus of Nazareth. This was quite unusual. It's very rare for a pope to write a book, and especially a book like Jesus of Nazareth, which aims not simply to recount events from the Pope's own life, nor to edify the faithful with homiletic meditations, you might say, the kind of popular interview books, uh, Q&A books that John Paul II uh, did. They, they were mostly of this variety. Rather, Benedict's book aimed to engage at length with, with the mysteries of faith as a theologian, even though he said it was not a formal exercise of his papal magisterium. In fact, Benedict devoted quite a bit of time in the first 17 months of his papacy to working on this project, which he would eventually uh, issue in three volumes, totaling 900 pages. Now compare that with his encyclicals, He issued three encyclicals only as Pope, totaling 287 pages. To be sure, sheer quantity is not uh, a measure of importance, but I think it does tell us something about Benedict's priorities. And what is more, Jesus of Nazareth, the book, is unmistakably a work from Ratzinger's own pen, whereas his three encyclicals, like many other papal writings and much papal speaking, was the fruit of a much wider collaboration with the Roman Curia. Now, Benedict tells us himself that this book underwent a long gestation, culminating in an intense period of work with a kind of urgency of purpose to bring the book out. And this is text A. He writes, I was able to begin work on it during the 2003 summer holidays. Then in August 2004, I gave chapters one to four their final shape. Since my election to the Episcopal See of Rome, I have used, now listen to this, I have used every free moment to make progress on the book. As I do not know how much more time or strength I am still to be given, I have decided to publish the first 10 chapters, covering the period from the baptism to the transfiguration, because it struck me as the most urgent priority to present the figure and the message of Jesus in his public ministry and so to help foster the growth of a living relationship with him. So the book project was obviously very important to Pope Benedict, and he saw it as urgently needed in the church, and perhaps as the greatest contribution he might make as pope, even though he wasn't issuing it as an exercise of the magisterium. And that's why I think it's important and and justified to regard it as a key uh, element of his theological legacy, which is what this conference is about. Now, Benedict identifies quite clearly what's at the heart of this project, to foster a living relationship with Jesus through reading the scriptures as divine revelation entrusted to the church's tradition. And this is a theme with very many echoes throughout the writings of Joseph Ratzinger that the work of exegesis by contemporary scholars of the historical critical method risks flattening scripture and depriving it of its character as a living revelation of God, a revelation above all of the person of Christ who is alive and who can be known through faith. 
And I would contend that the reason Benedict devoted so much time, precious time, as Pope to writing this book is that he wanted to provide a concrete example of how the contemporary magisterium reads and interprets scripture in light of the historical critical method so as to bring the faithful to encounter the real living person of Jesus Christ. So at this point, I think it's helpful to review the historical context, the kind of broader setting for Benedict's project, especially if you think of him as an intellectual, a German intellectual, a German professor who then is also a pope, important teacher of the faith, and um, witness to Christ. Beginning in the 18th and 19th centuries, a movement emerged, especially in German New Testament scholarship, that sought to discover the historical Jesus. Apart from the Christ of faith, handed on by ecclesial traditions. This quest for the historical Jesus, what's sometimes known as the first quest for the historical Jesus, largely collapsed at the beginning of the 20th century when Albert Schweitzer showed that the various historians working in this quest had produced incompatible portraits of Jesus that appeared in the end to be little more than the projections of the self-images of the historians themselves. Then, in the mid-20th century, there was a new quest for the historical Jesus, this time with more, a more broadly accepted historical critical methodology. And it's really this second quest, uh, which is the scholarly movement that Benedict has immediately in mind and to which he's responding in Jesus of Nazareth, I would contend. I think that's fairly clear in the preface to the book. So another quote from Benedict, this is quote B on your handout. He's describing the context. As historical critical scholarship advanced, it led to finer and finer distinctions between layers of tradition in the Gospels, beneath which the real object of faith, the figure of Jesus, became increasingly blurred, obscured and blurred. At the same time, though, the reconstructions of this Jesus became more and more incompatible with one another. All these attempts have produced a common result, the impression that we have very little certain knowledge of Jesus, and that only at a later stage did faith in his divinity shape the image we have of him. This is a dramatic situation for faith, because its point of reference is being placed in doubt, intimate friendship with Jesus, on which everything depends, is in danger at clutching at thin air. So I think this is the impetus for Benedict's project to study Jesus of Nazareth and to write this book. He sees this book as an antidote to the dialectic that one often hears spoken about between the Jesus of history and the Christ of faith. It's a, it's a turn of phrase that you still encounter in contemporary scholarship. And I think Benedict thinks it's not a helpful, not a helpful dichotomy or a helpful dialectic. I would even contend that it's confusion-inducing. More on that in just a moment. So this distinction, Jesus of history, Christ of faith, dates back to Martin Kaler in the 19th century and may even have its origins in Gotthold Lessing in the 18th century. It was originally used, originally formulated, to discredit the Jesus Christ of traditional Christianity as a mythological projection. Now, of course, not everyone who uses it today, intends it in this sense. 
But to use this distinction does suggest that the knowledge of Jesus that history gives us is in contrast to or even in tension with the claims made about him by faith. And that's why I think it's a confused distinction and confusion-inducing and why I would recommend that we just set it aside and stop talking about it. So drawing from Pope Benedict's critique of this dialectic, I think we can formulate four reasons why it's problematic, especially in its more radical form. This, this really applies to the more radical form, but nonetheless, I think is, that's still influencing even if you try to use it in, in a more um, modest or um, a less noxious sense. So the first reason, it presupposes that history is what gives us access to whatever we can truthfully and reliably know about the historical figure of Jesus. Other claims about him, like the claims made by faith, are presumed to be non-historical because they originate in a profession of faith. Indeed, the original argument was that the high faith claims about Christ's divine identity as Lord and God, that's the Christ of faith, that these claims were projected back onto the humble historical figure of Jesus of Nazareth at a later date. And sometimes they were, this was done for impure motives, like securing the religious authority and social power of the uh, Christian community or the church leaders, that kind of thing. So to pursue the Jesus of history in this way calls for screening out of the portrait of Jesus whatever facts cannot be independently validated by historical research. So on this view, what counts as true knowledge about the, the real Jesus is limited to what history can discover. And a historian filters out the faith claims about Jesus in the tradition in order to arrive at a historically pure account of Jesus. Much like a chemist seeks to eliminate contaminants in order to arrive at a chemically pure solution. This is actually uh, Ratzinger's own analogy. Others may tack on things to this portrait that history arrives at, but what's tacked on later is foreign to or layered on top of the real person who really walked and taught in Palestine. And because that person is in the past, true knowledge of him is only accessible to us through the historical method. Yet, as Benedict's book shows, and I think also the work of many other responsible historians, the historical method does not itself call for this kind of absolute approach. Rather, one can legitimately bracket faith claims and momentarily set them aside while one is doing a historical investigation without presupposing or making a judgment about those faith claims. And indeed, the historical method is not competent itself to directly assess those faith claims. For example, the historical method can give us insight into the chronology of Christ's earthly ministry. It can help us understand the cultural milieu in which he preached and taught. 
And this may aid us greatly in understanding the words and deeds of Jesus. And such a, an investigation, a historical investigation, it may well conclude that Jesus himself claimed to have authority to forgive sins, for example. That he acted against the Jewish leaders in charge of the administration of the temple in Jerusalem. And that this was at least part of the reason why they sought to have him killed by the Roman authorities. So history is competent to to draw those kinds of conclusions. But the historical method cannot itself assess whether Jesus really did have the power to forgive sins or whether he really was the savior of his people, or whether he really did live in a surpassing and perfect intimacy with God as the incarnate son of the eternal father. Consequently, a more modest historian will recognize these limits, will recognize the limits of the historical method when it comes to questions like these. And he will not deny the possibility that those kinds of faith claims may very well be truly said of the real historical figure of Jesus. That is, the real historical Jesus may very well be the incarnate Son of the Father, in truth. But that's something that the historical method cannot of itself judge. So this brings us to my second point. The dichotomy, Jesus of history, Christ of faith, presumes that the faith claims of Christianity obscure the historical figure from view, or even fundamentally distort our picture of him. But if there is a deeper reality about his identity that can only be known by faith, for example, that he's the eternal son, then what faith teaches about Jesus does not obscure, but illuminates what we can know about him from history. So a believing historian might interpret the meaning and significance of the historical facts about Jesus precisely in light of what he knows by faith about the true identity of Jesus and about the reason Jesus did and suffered as he did to save the world. In this perspective, the knowledge of Jesus we obtain by faith gives a fundamental orientation and significance to the other truths about him that history can validate or discover. Okay, third reason. If you systematically reject or take with skepticism the faith claims made about Jesus by the New Testament, you really are, I think, setting aside the best evidence from the historical sources themselves about Jesus. So the earliest testimonies to the person of Jesus are found in the New Testament. And those testimonies actually make very high faith claims about him. Most fundamentally, that he rose from the dead in his human body. Consider, for example, the letters of St. Paul, which claim that Jesus is Lord and Christ, or to choose a source that's probably uh, historically later than the letters of Paul, the Gospel of St. John, which recounts the many signs Jesus worked, not in order to provide facts about some man of history named Jesus, but that 
you should find these words familiar from John 20, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Indeed, methodologically, if you say that you will only consider as true knowledge of Jesus what can be verified by the historical method, you will be systematically cutting yourself off from the very possibility that he really did come to bring a revelation of God, or that he was God himself, who became man and lived and taught and worked miracles, rose from the dead, in history. So to filter these faith claims away is to assume that the only truths that count here are the, are the kinds of observable and documentable facts that a historical method can assess or weigh. And that's to, that's to falsify uh, or to distort the very historical data itself because what those oldest sources are trying to tell us are not historical facts simply, but historical facts pointing to the fact the most important fact, that Jesus is Lord, the Christ, the Son of the living God, it's just a truth that can only be known by believing it by faith. So, at this point, perhaps uh, you're thinking, uh, wait a minute, Father, I have an objection. One might pose an objection. So, objection. Isn't it possible to go back through the Gospels, go through the, the texts of the New Testament themselves, and show that the real historical Jesus was not what those faith claims contained in those documents suggest? You know, can we use the New Testament against the faith claims? Do other historical sources paint a different picture of him, one that diverges from the witness of the New Testament? Now, there are some historians who have argued along these lines. And in fact, there's a kind of uh, very popular cottage industry uh, of this if you um, go into certain you know aisles in the bookstore uh, people will write books on kind of why the Gnostic Gospels have debunked the, the Jesus of, of the New Testament that kind of thing I think a full answer to this objection would require us to enter into a lot of details about the historical debates over specific claims which obviously we don't have time for today but let me just make um, three general points of reply so that we're still on Point three of my big picture, but this is three responses to an objection. So first response to this objection. This kind of objection, notice, it remains on the level of history. It's a question of what the historical sources actually show. And the response of a Christian historian, it seems to me, should be to engage with the evidence and the arguments on the domain of history. So one might think here of, for example, N.T. Wright's important historical work on the resurrection. He has a big fat book, The Resurrection of the Son of God, which if you don't know it um, and you're interested in this kind of thing is well worth taking a look at. Wright argues persuasively to my mind that the only way to account for the wide and rapid diffusion across the civilized world in the first century AD of a shockingly innovative and yet coherent Christian belief in the resurrection from the dead is that a group of disciples of Jesus really did witness his death and then encountered him as raised from the dead in an entirely supernatural way. Okay, so that's, he's just making a historical argument about explaining the facts that we can see in the historical record. Second reply to, to this objection, I would contend that a good historian 
will be able to show that the skeptical position is not true or at least that it is an improbable hypothesis that doesn't compel our assent. In other words, it's like the relationship between uh, faith and reason. Um, you can show that the argument doesn't prove what it claims uh, or that it's false you, you, because the argument isn't going to be able to actually uh, definitively prove positively what it claims. Okay, third reply to, to this objection. I would note that there's very little contemporaneous historical evidence for the life of Jesus outside the New Testament, except for a few non-Christian sources that more or less confirm his existence as a religious figure who was killed by the Romans, but they don't give us a whole lot more than that. So texts like the Gnostic Gospels, for example, date from a much later period and come from a different geographic and cultural milieu than the Palestinian Judaism of the first century AD. And so they're very probably not reliable as a purely historical matter, if you just want to get to the oldest layer of, of historical fact. So this now brings me to my, my fourth larger point about the Jesus of history, Christ of faith dialectic. In truth, Jesus is one. So he is a figure in history, but his deepest identity can only be known through faith. So to put this another way, faith is built on what happened in history. So history and faith interpenetrate each other, or better, faith presupposes and incorporates history, and history points to faith. And if we are truly to encounter Jesus through the scriptures, through the church's tradition, these need each other. Faith and history need each other. Okay, this brings me back to Pope Benedict's historical methodology, or his methodology in Jesus of Nazareth. The way I read him, I think Benedict seeks to integrate the historical method into a more penetrating and more properly theological exegesis of Scripture. And he elaborates this method in Jesus of Nazareth in three stages. So first, he valorizes the historical method in view of the historical truth of the Incarnation. Second, he acknowledges its limits. And third, he then orients it to a new finality, namely to bringing us into contact not with a dead word of the past, but as a living word, uh, a God, God's supernatural revelation of himself. So on the first point, valorizing the historical method, Benedict underlines that Christian faith is necessarily historical just as the Incarnation is historical. Jesus lived in a particular time and place, and so forth. He, uh, this is a quote from Benedict. The opinion that faith as such knows absolutely nothing of historical facts and must leave all of this to historians. Notice, you know, that what theologians do over here is separate from what historians do over here. That's the, what he's identifying. This, he says, is Gnosticism. This opinion disembodies faith and reduces it to a pure idea that Jesus, in all that, it is, in all that is essential, was effectively who the Gospels reveal him to be to us. This is not mere historical conjecture, but a fact of faith. So thus far, Benedict. And so for this reason, and then this is quote C on your handout, 
he says, the historical critical method is and remains an indispensable dimension of exegetical work, for it is of the very essence of biblical faith to be about real historical events. If we push this history aside, Christian faith as such disappears and is recast as some other religion. I think he'd say Gnosticism. So if history, if facticity in this sense is an essential dimension of Christian faith, then faith must expose itself to the historical method. Indeed, faith itself demands this. Okay, so this is very important. First point. Okay, yet second, the historical method is limited, and it's limited in three ways that he identifies. First, by its very nature, it has to leave the biblical word in the past. This is related to the intrinsic limits of our human knowledge. We can never go beyond, the, this is a quote from him, we can never go beyond the domain of hypothesis in historical research because we simply cannot bring the past into the present. To be sure, some hypotheses enjoy a very high degree of certainty, but overall we need to remain conscious of the limits of our certainties. And then a second reason, likewise, using uh, scripture only as a historical source considers the biblical text as human words. And finally, uh, no, as, as not as divine words, but just as human words, as merely human words. And finally, insofar as uh, this kind of method considers individual books of Scripture in the context of their historical period and investigates their sources, their composition, that method cannot look beyond those individual books to read them as a unified Bible, one revelation of Christ, who he thinks is the key to the whole. So this is uh, the sort of second uh, moment in Benedict's methodology. The first moment is his, history is valuable. We have to use the historical critical method. But number two, it's limited, and it's limited in these three ways. And so in a third moment then, Benedict suggests that rightly used, the historical method can raise questions that point beyond itself. In other words, history will eventually point you to faith. So this is another quote. On painstaking reflection, it can intuit something of the deeper value the word contains. And so open up the method to self-transcendence. And again, another quote. The inner nature of the historical critical method points beyond itself and contains within itself an openness to complementary methods. So Benedict offers an example of what he means. Historical research has documented that as early as 20 or so years after Jesus' death, the great Christ hymn of the letter to the Philippians in Philippians 2 offers us a fully developed Christology of the incarnation, including of the mystery of his death and exaltation, so that Jesus rightly receives the adoration of all creation, an adoration that is due only to God. So Benedict asks, if that's what history tells us about this text, this is an early text, it's making this claim about Jesus, where did this Christology come from? Where did this high view of Jesus as God to be adored, where did that come from? So this is text D. To say that it's the fruit of anonymous collective formulations does not actually explain anything. How could these groups, 
these early Christian communities, be so creative? How were they so persuasive? How did they manage to prevail? Isn't it more logical, even historically speaking, to assume that the greatness came at the beginning and that the figure of Jesus really did explode all existing categories and could only be understood in the light of the mystery of God? And Benedict then goes on to add that actually to believe that Jesus is God exceeds the competency of the historical method. And he suggests that the more closely history approaches the truth of what is contained in the revelation of Christ, like the better, in a certain way, the better history does its job, the closer it will come to the message that was being proclaimed, the primitive message that was being proclaimed about Jesus, the more our historical investigation will point us to the truth of faith being witnessed to. So what he's trying to get at is when you do history in the best way, it actually brings you close to the encounter with Jesus and the witness to him that the early community was bearing, which calls for a response of faith. So the historical critical method is aided, he thinks, by the development in the latter half of the 20th century of other methodologies of reading scripture. And he highlights especially what he calls, or what others have called before him, canonical exegesis. That's the project of reading the diverse texts of the Bible in the context of the whole. Namely, according to a canon, hence canonical, a canon developed by a living tradition. So such a canonical reading helps shed light on the meaning of individual texts as older texts, think of, say, the prophecies in Isaiah, as older texts are reappropriated, reinterpreted, and read with new eyes in new contexts. So Jesus in the synagogue reads Isaiah and tells you what it means. This is a kind of dynamic of canonical exegesis. Jesus thinks it's legitimate to interpret Isaiah in light of himself. And that means that actually you don't just isolate the the writing of Isaiah in this moment of his own historical period, you know, centuries before Christ, but you see it as part of one account that is related, uh, intertwined. Even canonical exegesis, however, is not yet a fully theological reading of Scripture. For that, it's necessary to regard Scripture as revealed, as the Word of God making an act of faith in the truthfulness of God who reveals himself in history. So it's to the theme of revelation that Benedict next turns in talking about his, uh, the methodology that he wants to propose to us. And his remarks on this strike me, and I'd actually I'd love to hear from the other scholars of Benedict's work uh, and uh, on this, this subject more broadly. I'd love to hear from, their, from them on this. It seems to me that his remarks on divine revelation in the preface to Benedict of Nazareth is extremely original and I think quite helpful at avoiding a dichotomy between a historical approach to scripture and a theological reading of scripture as divinely inspired. So specifically, Benedict shows how divine inspiration worked within history to produce holy scripture as we, ha- as we now have it. So this is Benedict's uh, account 
there are three interacting subjects. He calls them subjects or authors of Scripture. I think he has in mind the subject of a sentence, the one who's, who's acting. On the first level, one finds the individual human author or group of authors who wrote individual scriptural texts. And, of course, on the Catholic view, these authors were not mere scribes of a kind of divine revelation giving them a literal uh, dictation, a dictation from the Holy Spirit. That's not the Catholic understanding. Rather, it was that their human minds were illuminated by the Holy Spirit, and they were guided to express in a human form, conditioned, of course, by their historical context, their language, what they had, uh, their human experiences, guided and conditioned, uh, guided by the Holy Spirit, but also conditioned by, by their, their context. Uh, and that this necessarily affected the texts that they produced, uh, which is why, by the way, it's important to study history so we can understand like, what they were trying to say, what they thought that they were saying. But Benedict then adds an important insight. There's a second level to this historical authorship. And this is what I think is somewhat innovative in his reflections. Because these human writers were not writing as autonomous individuals, but rather in the context of a living tradition. And more specifically, as members of the people of God, from within whose heart and to whom they speak. So this makes a second subject or a second author of Scripture, the living community of the people of God. You might think here of uh, some of the reflections of the Yale School, on uh, which kind of point us to this kind of tradition. But it seems to me that Benedict is taking this even to a higher level because he's positing a kind of uh, supernatural constitution of the people of God, which makes it not just a human tradition that they're part of, but actually a divine tradition as God is acting through the people of God, which, which bridges the gap between Israel and the church. In fact, it's one people, ultimately. Although the unity of this people requires a theological understanding of the church, the living tradition that it represents can also be investigated as a historical reality, so you can also investigate this kind of continuity of the tradition on the level of history. And that's what canonical exegesis does as a kind of second uh, historical methodology. But the church ultimately receives scripture as a revelation of God who speaks. And this brings us to the third level of authorship. The people of God is formed by God who leads them and who speaks to them. So at the deepest level, God is the author of sacred scripture. And that's the deepest reason why it's legitimate to read the Bible as a single book that speaks not in human words that remain in the past, but as a living word addressing a living subject today. So it seems to me that this is a helpful way to escape the narrowness of a purely historical approach to the human author of biblical texts and to understand how, what we understand uh, by the tradition. The tradition is not just a historical reality, it's also a theological reality. Benedict concludes his discussion of methodology in Jesus of Nazareth by explaining that this book is, quote, an expression of my personal search for the face of the Lord Jesus. He is convinced that the serious study of history 
and the fruits of contemporary exegesis enrich that search. They, quote, enable the figure of Jesus to become present to us with a vitality and depth that we could not have imagined just a few decades ago. Yet, Benedict does not seek to learn about Jesus as a figure of the past, but to meet him as a living person and to develop a living relationship with him. And so here, I think we can turn to his first encyclical, Deus Caritas Est, where he writes, Being a Christian is not the result of an ethical choice or a lofty idea, but the encounter with an event, a person, which gives a new gives life a new horizon and a decisive direction. This is the teleology, the purpose and direction of the Gospels, and of Benedict's careful and scholarly search for an adequate methodology of scriptural interpretation, that as we read the scriptures, we would encounter Jesus and believe in him so that we would have life in his name. Thank you very much. And responding to uh, Father Dominic will be Dr. Rebecca Eklund. I was trained in a setting that aimed to try to close the historic gap between theology on the one hand and biblical studies on the other hand, which explains why I'm a New Testament scholar who teaches theology, and I hope also does theology. The Enlightenment era division of labor between scholars who do Bible and scholars who do theology, such that Bible scholars establish what the text meant, and then theologians go on to explore what it means, has become increasingly challenged as both sides venture into each other's territory. This is nothing new. Benedict exemplifies what was the default mode of the church for a millennium and a half thinking theologically in conversation with scripture and tradition, or perhaps more precisely, in conversation with its traditions, which included scripture. The fraught relationship between historical critical scholarship and theological interpretation is something that I think a lot about in my own work. So it was a wonderful opportunity to dive into the works of Benedict XVI, or Joseph Ratzinger, who has wrestled so thoughtfully with that relationship. I especially appreciated Father Dominic bringing to our attention Benedict's aim to focus on the goal of reading scripture as a living relationship with Jesus. That is a goal I share, and it is not always an easy one to achieve from within the New Testament discipline or from within the academy in general. I can't speak for every reader, but for this one, Benedict has succeeded. These books are warm and compelling portraits of the Son who invites us to share in the loving communion he enjoys with the Father. In some ways, that might be a sufficient response to these books. But I've been asked to respond as a New Testament scholar, so I'm going to put on my New Testament hat for just a few minutes and respond to um, Father Legg's thoughtful paper by exploring three main issues. Which scholarly movement Benedict has in mind? Benedict's stance toward the historical method, and finally, the character of the fourfold gospel as our best witness to the life of Jesus. 
So first I want to wonder a little bit about which scholarly movement Benedict did have in mind. Father Legg offered a very helpful sketch of the type of scholarship with which Benedict engages. The sketch was illuminating in part because it pointed to the mid-20th century and the new quest for the historical Jesus as the scholarly movement that Benedict has immediately in mind. Indeed, almost all of Benedict's primary sources and conversation partners are from the early and mid-20th century, an important but older generation of scholars, almost exclusively German Catholics, with the occasional German Lutheran such as Rudolf Bultmann. Notably absent, at least for this New Testament scholar, are Raymond Brown and John Meyer, the two most important Catholic New Testament scholars of the second half of the 20th century. Leg mentions N.T. Wright, who indeed would be an interesting conversation partner, given Wright's own commitments to blend historical, uh, responsible historical research with theological interpretation. As a more specific example, Father Legg noted that Benedict discusses how such a high Christology could have developed as early as Philippians 2, a theme which is currently a lively debate in New Testament scholarship, spearheaded by Larry Hurtado, among others. And when Benedict makes a case for John's historicity and composition by an eyewitness, a controversial claim to be sure among biblical scholars, his argument would have been enriched by the work of Richard Baucom and Moody Smith, who have both written books advancing similar claims. I don't mean this as a criticism so much as an observation, because I'm aware that Benedict had another job at the time, and it's hard to imagine writing books of this magnitude with a 3-3 teaching load, much less as Pope to the world's Catholics. It's a common enough complaint in the New Testament Guild that English language scholars read only English scholarship, and German language scholars read only German. It may, however, help to explain certain features of these books, such as Benedict's claim that the Gospels contain an almost completely realized eschatology, or his interpretation of the word Abba, which relies on a study by Joachim Jeremias that has been widely modified, perhaps even discredited, by later scholarship. My broader, broader point is simply that if one aims as I try to do, and as Benedict clearly tries to do, to incorporate historically responsible exegesis into one's theological reflection, it matters which historical sources one uses. Second, Father Legg has already laid out incisively the weaknesses of the so-called dialectic between the Jesus of history and the Christ of faith. I share without reservation his critiques of that dialectic, and I also think it's simply terminology that we should no longer make use of. I do want to explore Father Legg's claim that Benedict valorizes the historical method in view of the historical truth of the Incarnation. I think Benedict remains deeply ambivalent toward the historical method. This is an ambivalence that I share. I think as a method, it is worth remaining deeply ambivalent towards. Indeed, I think that theological interpretation larger, largely requires historical work only on an ad hoc basis. I asked my mentor Richard Hayes once how one knows when to use the historical tools and which ones, and he replied, well, you just get the hang of it after a while. I found that enormously unhelpful at the time. <laughs> But I've started to see the point since then. It requires a kind of phronesis, a practical wisdom and spiritual discernment that develops over time and is nurtured within the communal worship of the people of God. 
On the one hand, Benedict makes a persuasive case that the Christian faith is itself firmly rooted in history. It's rooted in human history at a particular point in time. And he also clearly narrates the limits, and they are serious limits, of historical investigation. His treatment of the resurrection in relation to history is especially insightful in that regard, and I've returned more than once to that particular part of his book on the Passion Narratives. On the other hand, I wonder if his characterization of historical critical exegesis as always liberal as opposed to Catholic, and even as a tool of the Antichrist, undermines his insistence on the necessity of historical work. In his exegesis of the temptation narrative, Benedict refers to scholarly exegesis of the purely scientific kind, the kind that assumes God cannot act in history, as a tool of the devil. This strikes me as the reverse of the argument that people of faith cannot do unbiased exegesis. To be sure, we all know of historical critical work that aims actively to undermine the faith of the church. But I've also learned a great deal about first century Palestine from purely scientific exegesis, not to mention the important work of Jewish scholars such as Amy Jill Levine. While it is true of many historical critical scholars that their work indeed does risk flattening scripture and depriving it of its character as a living revelation of God, as Father Dominic said earlier, I think there is also much to learn from at least some of those who do not share our faith. This brings me to my third and final point about the character of the Gospels as a fourfold witness to Christ. Leg named a third weakness of the dialectic between the Jesus of history and the Christ of faith, which was skepticism toward faith claims made about Jesus in the New Testament. I am in complete agreement with Father Leg that the Gospels are our earliest and best and indeed almost only sources for the life of Jesus. I also resonated with Benedict's treatment of the divine and human authorships of scripture and, as a corollary, the harmony of the four gospel accounts. However, to invoke a common musical metaphor, the gospels sing in harmony, not in melody. They are a united witness to Jesus, but not a fully uniform one. Allow me to give two brief examples. First, Benedict uses the presumed dating of the Gospels to argue against the view that the evangelists have skewed their portrayal of Pilate in order to shift blame away from um, the Romans and onto the Jews for Jesus' death. It is simply too early, he proposes, for such a view to have developed among Christians, while Nero and perhaps Domitian's persecutions are still ringing in their ears. This is a sensitive and interesting move, one that takes seriously the history of the Gospels and their respective writers. I wonder if he could have used similar historical insights to grapple with the rise of anti-Jewish and anti-synagogue polemic in Christian writings, including in the Gospel of John, as tensions intensified between Jews who accepted Jesus and Jews who did not. Second, Benedict's portrayal of Jesus is thoroughly Johannine, as you can tell simply by opening up to page one of the first volume where he quotes John chapter one, verse 18, as the key to understanding Jesus. Now, I also think that is the key to understanding Jesus. But Benedict tends to read the other three gospels through the lens of John. He often declines to analyze differences among the four accounts, even where these differences might invite theological reflection. 
For example, somewhat to my surprise, Benedict agrees with many modern New Testament scholars that Mark 16.8 is the authentic ending of Mark. But he refrains from speculating on why it ends on a note of fear and fleeing. It's enigmatic interruption, he writes. We must leave unexplained. Why must we, I wonder? There has been some insightful and even, dare I say, beautiful theological musing on why Mark ends there. Scholar Joel Marcus, for example, writes that as Mark's readers, we are left confronting the awful mystery of the gaping tomb. Since Mark does not wrap up all the loose ends, we have no alternative but to return to the inception of his narrative, the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, and to start to read it again as our story. Mark's gospel is just the beginning of the good news, because Jesus' story has become ours, and we take it up where Mark leaves off. The strength of Benedict's approach is that he builds a persuasive case for the harmony of the four Gospels. But I worry that the distinctive witness of the other three is occasionally a little muted. Patristic tradition, as you know, identified the four evangelists as the four living creatures from Ezekiel chapter 1 and Revelation chapter 7. Over time, the lion came to be associated with Mark, the ox with Luke, the man with Matthew, and the eagle with John. I sometimes thought that Benedict gave me mostly eagle. I'm going to show my cards here and tell you that I love the Gospel of Mark. I want to hear the lion roar. And I rarely did in these books. But that is a small complaint for a trio of books that has taken so seriously the character of the Gospels as a witness to the living Jesus who came in the flesh to show us the Father. I'll let Benedict have the last word in two phrases given to us earlier by Chad Pecknold and Father Legg. Everything depends on intimate friendship with Jesus. Run to Christ, our only hope. And to that, as a gospel scholar, I can only say, amen.